The Justice Society must live on. Its legacy must survive. Someone with honor and strength must carry the torch. Not you. Someone with grace and heroism. You, you can't do it. But someone out there will. But it's definitely not you, Pat. You are a good friend. <laughs> I'm Chris Bybee. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Journalists, we talk about Stargirl. Good morning, genreless listeners, or evening, or afternoon, or in the dredges of night. But I will point out one thing that my my grandmother always told me, nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. So hopefully you're not listening at about 2.30 a.m. So, okay, wait a minute. It's like, ever? So like after 2 a.m. tomorrow, I'm just done? Or like, is there a cutoff point where it starts becoming good again? That's the, I think what's the window? When the sun rises and all the vampires have to flee back into their coffins is when the good reemerges, but that so, so, two to six window. <laughs> well, then I'm actually going to be really good right now because uh, it, the sunrise happens at like five a.m. now in London, so I have like <laughs> only a three-hour slice of bad I have to worry about. You you'll be glad to know that I did resist breaking out into lyrics of the freaks come out at night because I was making my vampire joke, <laughs> but I'm not above referencing it though. In much the same way that the sea is not above the clouds, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, we are here to discuss Stargirl because I decided, in my infinite wisdom as always, unquestioning, that if we're covering <laughs> the CW, we need to try to cover as many CW shows as possible, even the ones that are tangentially related. And right. Stargirl started on another network, but I think it aired the day after on the CW, and then it became a CW show. Oh, so it wasn't like a season like Supergirl? It was like one episode and then on the CW? I, if I remember right, they had the budget of like the HBO Max or whatever it was, which I think gave them about $8 million per episode compared to the average Arrow show that had maybe a million or two. Wow. Hence, you can tell the vast difference in quality. Yes. And, but they would also air it there. And then I think the following day they would air it on the CW or also CW app. So you had that overlap. Oh, I see. So it was actually m multiple places you could get it. Which then increases the amount of views it gets. And I think tries to reinforce their massively, massively larger budget. Uh, yeah. And it certainly shows that that's not a huge surprise, honestly. Um, but, before we can get into the joy or pain that is that is Stargirl, we need to discuss a problematic aspect of the show. And if you're tired of hearing me talk about the problematic, problematic aspects of the show, I ask that you stop and think how much I have to endure the problematic aspects compared right. to listening to it for like three minutes. Right. Would you care to guess? Um, I mean, there's just so much. So <laughs> Narrow it down to. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to narrow this specifically down to Jeff Johns, as we can't talk about Stargirl Courtney Whitmore without Jeff Johns because it is Jeff Johns' creation, and oh, right, Jeff okay. Johns has a part in the drama that is Joss Whedon's racism, sexism, 
and his other slew of problems because he empowered Joss Whedon on the set of Justice League. He was one of the people that Ray Fisher came to and was told more or less just to get in line. And there's a lot of other intense drama and there's a lot of story that goes along with that. We are not going to go into that because we're not here to focus on Justice League. Justice Society, unexpectedly. But we're here to talk about Stargirl. And Stargirl is based on Jeff John's sister. It's his creation. His sister, unfortunately, died in a plane accident in 1996. And so the character is heavily based on her. Mm. Okay. So there's no way to discuss her without discussing Jeff John's. And I personally don't feel comfortable discussing this without mentioning Jeff John's hand in systematic oppression of marginalized people. Okay. Fair enough. I thought we were going to talk about the fact that um, uh, uh, an Asian actress is positioned to be a Kung Fu specialist and also takes on a, a uh, title of an exotic animal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or we could talk about the daughter of the Dragon King, who is also named Shiv. Yeah, yeah. There's a... In that trope. There's there's a a lot to unpack there. Yeah, but I I was focusing more on the creator and those issues than the somewhat problematic aspect of certain aspects of the show itself. Right, and, and it's it's unfortunate because um, Jeff Johns is frankly the reason why we have the Justice Society as we understand it today. Um, the Justice Society kind of existed previously in the silver age um but it was more of a, a earth two situation where the justice league would cross over to them because time worked differently and blah 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 reasons to use golden age characters uh but this idea of these established characters staying around uh building a dynamic and specifically being around to train the newer generation that all comes from jeff johns actually <clears throat> I think it originated in the 70s, if I remember right, because that was like part okay. of it. So it was before Jeff Johns, but he definitely played into it and amplified it to make it what we believe it to be now. So, well, okay, that, that, that's, that's fair. The, the, the Justice Society as we recognize it now and the lineup that we recognize now d- does kind of come from Jeff Johns. That, that, but you're fair. I, right? There was kind of bits and pieces of this in previous decades. That is a fair assessment. Because the Justice Society started back in the golden age of comics, which the show sort of alludes to, which is in of itself is another question that I may bring up when we start oh into the pilot about how the golden age of superheroes ended in 2010. Yes. But <clears throat> no, another conversation. We're not there yet. Um, but no, it started way back when for the golden age. I want to say it was like one of the first superhero team up books. Mind you, their team up was them sitting in a room together discussing their individual missions or stories. Yes. But they were together. Right. If I remember correctly, the first actual team book as we recognize it now was actually Justice League. Uh, but the Justice Society does predate it as more of a framing device for the anthology stories that were going on at the time. Um, but then the Justice Society as a team didn't come about until Justice League did a crossover with Justice Society around like the 60s, 50s around there. Because I think part of it was they wanted to update the Justice Society, and instead of doing that, someone went and made the Justice League. So you have that transition. Because one Mm -hmm. of the things for the Justice Society comic in the early days was that if a superhero got their own comic book, they were no longer a part of the society, but they were like an honorary member. So that's why Batman and Superman were honorary members of the Justice Society when it started. 
Right. Makes sense. And I personally love the idea and concept of the Justice Society and what it sort of morphed into, largely to some part thanks to Jeff Johns, but what it sort of became with Mr. Terrific, Power Woman, and all, like, all the other members of it. And looking at that version of it compared to the Golden Age version, much less like the first one, I think, that had the Spectre as part of it. Yeah. <clears throat> the the Spectre, like the Im- God's embodiment of vengeance or something on Earth, just hanging out <laughs> with, a, with a bunch of noobs with no abilities. Right. And for me, also, I like Just Society because it was a chance to redeem some minor characters. I mean, yes, they had people like... Um, uh, the the Jay Garrick Flash, which we talked about in the previous Flash episodes, um, the original not based in space Green Lantern, you know stuff like that, but also characters who before then had really been seen much, like Wildcat and Doctor Midnight and Hour Man, um, and give them a chance to exist without the required reboot necessary. So it's the no, they're just they exist more or less as they did in the Silver and Golden Age. Uh, some tweaks, some adjustments, but generally speaking, they're more or less as presented, and they're presented uh, uh, unapologetically. It's like, no, these characters existed, and we're going to celebrate them, rather than have to do an edgy reboot. Granted, some of them, like Iron Man, did in fact also get an edgy reboot, but that's a separate conversation. <laughs> but you forgot the most important member of the entire Justice Society. Which Dr. One? Midnight. I, did, I mentioned Dr. Midnight. Sorry if you did. I didn't think so. But the the physician, the person that can actually treat superhero injuries, the the night nurse, if you will, or <laughs> the Doctor Strange. But you never see Doctor Strange doing anything medical anymore. Like not at all. Not even with magically healing people. And it's it's funny because like Doctor Midnight is one of those characters when you're like, yeah, a superhero doctor actually makes sense. And then you read comics and it's like, oh, okay, that's actually not. You need something else with that. And so Dr. Minnie's always kind of weird space of like, it makes a perfect sense why he's on the team, but also what he does to the team gets kind of weird and hard to write with. So I, I, have, I have a soft spot for him. I guess we should start with the, we've touched on some of the, the tangled history that's associated with the Justice Society, but now we need to bring in Stargirl and Infinity Inc., which is a lot yeah. of where these characters that we see in the show actually come from. Mm. So the Justice Society was one of the first superhero groups. It ran for a while. They had different incarnations. <clears throat> they eventually get trapped in an eternal Ragnarokian war because there was like a mystical mystical character that linked the Nazis to uh, the Ragnarok war. And so the Justice Society had to go into this temporal warp to eternally fight this war to make the rest of the world survive and go on. Eventually, they get brought out of that because someone else does some nifty magic, so they don't have to be there to fight it. They age normally, then they don't age normally, uh, then right. they die, then they're brought back. <clears throat> and one of my own personal favorite characters in the Justice Society is Ted Knight, aka Starman, mm-hmm. which I know Ted Knight from reading the '90s run comics about Jack Knight, who is one of his sons, who takes up the mantle of Starman, oh, okay. who eventually passes on the cosmic rod to Courtney. And that's why she becomes star girl before that's that. Cool. We're going to go a little bit backwards. Um, Courtney Whitmore. A lot of the, her story is told very well in the show. Like almost all the beats are there. Okay. So 
regardless of my what I have to think about Jeff Johns now, I will not lie, but I say having a comic book writer be like the producer and having their hands in almost every aspect of the show makes it feel like a comic book and stays true mm-hmm. to the history and stories of the characters. Like all the characters have almost their comic histories translated into the screen in an updated but yet still retro way, which is another discussion we can have when we get to the pilot itself. Yeah. But she's Pat Dugan's um, <clears throat> stepdaughter. They move to Nebraska how they do. She discovers the Star Spangled Kid uniform. She puts it on. She runs around. And so all of that is there, and that's part of her story. And Pat Dugan, or Stripe, or Stripesy, is also <laughs> an interesting character. Because he did work with the Star Spangled Kid back in World War II. And mm. you have Hooters Pimbleton. So all of that's there. And Pat is just supposedly a, a good mechanic. You know, I know a lot of good mechanics, but none of them can build a super armored suit that flies around with superhuman strength. I'm just saying. Burr. Clearly, you have the wrong mechanics. I, I need to expand my roster. Exactly. And he even built a converter, a cosmic converter belt. This is before the cosmic staff. So the cosmic converter belt is what the Star Spangled Kid, both versions used. So Courtney inherited it, which would give them some super strength, some super agility, toughness. Let them shoot shiny star projectiles. Like you do. Yeah. And so that's what she ran around for a while, for two or three years of her life until she became Stargirl. Very convoluted, somewhat history, because she touches on so many legacy characters. And one of the things I've grown to love about DC is how they're able to pass over the mantle to to other characters. Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, uh, we've touched on this a little bit in other shows, but uh, Marvel is only like in the past five years gone, hey, maybe we should actually pass these mantles on to some other characters instead of having everyone exist in a perpetual mid-20s for 70-plus years. Uh, whereas DC's like, no. Uh, granted, DC still has people in a perpetual state of 20s for 70-plus years. Uh, but also, they do bring in other characters and let them have not only a touch of the legacy, but also uh, their own spin. Um, we've talked about how the, ver- the various flashes. Um, Green Lantern has had multiple iterations. Uh you know, Batman has never officially passed on the legacy except for in one case, but he's had a huge bat family of people who have picked up the cowl and, and gone their own way. Um, and DC does a really good job of not only saying this legacy exists and is largely recognizable, but also if someone new inhabits the role, they do bring a new spin and a new texture to things. And that is what makes, for me, makes DC very cool. Mm-hmm. Before I, I go into a little bit more of Courtney and sort of solidify some of those random plot points I gave everyone, <clears throat> I want to take a moment to say that I think the best Batman, hands down, is Dick Grayson Batman. He has the best aspects of Bruce and yep. the best aspects of Clark, as he was sort of equivalently raised by both of them. Those are almost his two dads, if you would. <laughs> it's true. And, and also, um, I mean, I, I think it's telling because Dick Grayson is one of the few members of the Bat family who has been able to carry a solo book, not in his superhero identity. You know, there have been a couple of just Grayson uh, 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 series, one of which in which he was a spy for Checkmate, I want to say. I thought it was Spiral. Or maybe it was Spiral, I don't remember. There's so many spy agencies in DC. Um, 
But uh, yeah, no, I mean, and the fact that he could just basically be James Bond. And that's amazing. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Dick Grayson unless we do a Dick Grayson show, which I would not be opposed to. I'm just saying. <laughs> and so we will go back to the Star Spangled Kid. The Sylvester, ah, Sylvester, the first Star Spangled Kid, forms the Infinity Inc. And Infinity Inc. is basically where the next generation of heroes that took up the mantle, equivalently, all sort of joined up that team because they weren't allowed into the GS- JSA. Right. And he did that under the moniker of Skyman. Okay. Yeah, 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 like I said. Yeah. And <laughs> during that point in time, that's when Courtney was a Star Spangled Kid working with Pat, who their relationship in the comics is magnified infinitely more than it is on a television show where she act- actively hates Pat. And so she took up the costume to torment him, not so much mm. to do justice. So the character in the comics evolves to be a good person. So a lot of that is her sort of story that goes on there. Okay. And touching now, having touched on all that, I need to take a minute to talk about the members that we see on the show for the justice society. Dr. Midnight, the original one also fought, in World War II and passed on his moniker and his ability to see in the dark to Beth, who is a version that we get in the show, mm-hmm. who is saved by our man during one of the infinity crisis, during one of the crises that DC has. Right. There's so many. And the big thing about that is almost all the Dr. Midnight's have a very strong medical background and they have some sort of visual... What's her? I don't want to say impairment, but some of them, I want to say the first one was. No, no. God, what was it? I lost do, my train thought. <laughs> but anyway, they, they have difficulty seeing in bright light, but they can see in perfect pitch blackness well. So that's why they use things like blackout bombs and things like that to give them the advantage. Okay. Okay. And it was one of the, I think it was, Dr. Midnight was the first character to have some sort of issue like that in comics. So I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Okay. And cool. it sort of is for each character that does that. Some of them even train owls as sidekicks. Nice. Owls see the dark. Right. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. And we will go for a wildcat. Wildcat. Um, wildcat. It's just a great boxer who eventually yep. passes the title on to Yolanda, who is like the version we're getting in the show. The one in the comics, the Ted eventually, I think it's mystically cursed and has nine lives. Yes. That is the most important part of of Wildcat is that he has, not only is he cursed to have nine lives, but loses eight of them like pretty quickly. Uh, So. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like the doctor in a way. Um, And then we'll move (laughs) on to our man. So our men is an interesting one because it, it is a mantle that's passed from father to son and yep. eventually to a future Android. Well, that's, yep. we won't get to the future Android today. And it is a drug actually that they take called Miraclo, mm-hmm. I believe. And so it's addictive mm-hmm. and it has its own sort of repercussions that go with it. And it's not something they can use in incremental bits. It's once it starts, it is for that hour. It's in effect. Yep. I was, and that's something like, it was funny when I saw Our Man was in the show, I was like, they can't become accurate with him. Um, and they didn't, they, they went a different direction and then, and that's fine. Um, because he's 
basically a steroid user. That's basically his character. Yeah. And we can talk about that when we get to the episode two. But so that is a core team that we have here, which leaves out the Flash. It leaves out Green Lantern. Alan Scott, AAK, AKA one of the best Green Lanterns because his ring has a vulnerability to wood. And one of his <laughs> major antagonists was Solomon Grundy, which is also a nice touch because Solomon Grundy plays a lot into the stories mm-hmm. for Starman, for Skyman. I want to say it's Grundy that actually kills Skyman which breaks oh. up the Infinity Inc. and why these characters, I think, eventually get to join the Justice League and the Justice Society and they're mentored by the Justice Society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by 18 or 19, Courtney is considered almost a senior member as Stargirl and is training even younger members how to use her powers. So that is a great evolution for a character that started as a bratty 14-year-old to senior mentor like around 19. Nice. And, and I mean, the other thing I, I've always liked about this collection of characters is that, uh, uh, again, they do something that only, really only DC and Marvel can do when you have that kind of legacy, is that these are all the characters with kind of strange backgrounds. Uh, there, There's no kind of continuity or larger design ethos. Um, it's just, you know, like, Green Lantern's just a guy with a magic ring. Like, literally, it's 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 not sci-fi. It's magic. Um, you know, Wildcat's just a really good boxer that also got cursed because of reasons. Um, you know, Stripe is a, a sidekick to wear a Stripe shirt and now is a robot that happens to have an acronym that conveniently happens to be Stripe. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting take because it's the... Look, these Golden Age, Silver Age characters can be just as relevant. You don't have to, to change them. You don't have to mess with the formula. But also, it's just that kind of amazing kinetic energy of superhero universes. Like, yes, all these things can coexist, and you don't need to explain them. You don't need to justify it. It just is, and it's awesome. As far as powers go for Courtney, she is a good gymnast. Right, and has a stick. That... She neither built, uh, so it, it is a, a shorter list. But the cosmic converter belt I briefly mentioned before gives super strength, agility, and some like low level superpowers like that. Uh, the cosmic staff gives stellar energy manipulation, flight, shoot energy beams, and it equivalently has a, a star in it. So that's why it's always so bright. That's why you see people running into it in the show or provide shed so much light. That's why Jack in the comics wore like welding goggles to keep the light down. Uh, okay. And it, it, I, I admit, I don't know anything about this character. Am I correct in assuming that stellar energy manipulation is code for whatever the, the writer needs it to do? No, actually it's, it's pretty much focused on equivalent concert cosmic energy. It literally just does energy manipulation stuff Oh, okay. with flight. That's it. That's because for Ted Knight, it was originally just a gravity rod. And then it eventually got the ability to shoot energy beams and some other stuff. They're not making force fields with it. They're like not re not re reorganizing all of the organs in your body to do X or Y. None of it. I fly, right. I shoot energy beams. Right. Or okay. Courtney rides it like a surfboard. Which is pretty great. Eats to the road. Which goes back to her being a good gymnast because I myself would fall off the cosmic rod every time I try to stand on it. 
Norman Rad. The- Norman Rad couldn't do it. He has to have an entire board. Right, right. Yeah, he, she she can do it just on a rounded stick. He has to, like a lame person, has to have an entire board to table stand on. Do you have ah? Oh, the one thing I I do want to mention is that since it's a big plot point for this, Courtney's dad in the comics is actually a a criminal for the Royal Flush Gang. I mean, oh, he's like a number one or number two criminal. He, he's not a big number either. Just a random schmo. So he's not even like one of the court. He's just like a ranked no. card. That's it's amazing. Like and a low card, like a one or two somewhere. Someone that's totally arbitrary. That's amazing. Um, I don't remember which comic it was, but there was a comic of uh, two goons were talking in a warehouse and they were talking about their careers working for themed villains. And it's like, yeah, I worked with uh, the Penguin for a while, and that was okay, but, you know, you, get, you have to get used to the fit, smell of fish for a while. And then he got captured, so I ended up moving over to the Riddler's gang. And, man, I had to memorize so many riddles and jokes, and that, I just left that thing before he figured I was gone. And it was, and it just I love the idea that there are these criminals who just rotate through various different supervillain gangs and just basically <laughs> adapt to their shtick for, like, the five or six months that criminal's around. Where, well, where else are you going to get steady employment? Right, exactly. It's like, you know what? If you go to Gotham, you always get work as a, as, a, as a thug. I would not work for Zaz, though. That mm-mm. Oh, God, no. That's a Joker. very short-term employment prospect. Or the Joker. I, or, or Two-Face. Like, I would be a very selective criminal underling. Right, but, like, you know, I I would work for, like, you know, um, uh, uh, like, like, like the Riddler or, or uh, Captain Cold or, you know, like people who are just going to get captured and put in jail. That's fine. <laughs> Depending on which version of the penguin, I would work for the penguin because that means I just may be a bouncer in a nightclub for a while. <clears throat> right, exactly. Just saying. Gotta plan these things out. Um, any other comments about the history of Courtney? Do we want to touch on any of the questionable aspects? Or do you want to dive directly into the series now? Let's just let's just dive in because there's a there's a lot to unpack actually in the show. All right. Let's start with Season one, episode one, pilot, or I think in some place it's, it's called Stargirl. The Justice Society of America, JSA, headquarters is attacked by the Injustice Society of America, ISA, who kill their counterparts, Pat Dugan, uh, JSA's leader's Starman sidekick. Um, so one of the things I did forget to mention is that Pat was one of the rare things where you have an adult sidekick and a kid superhero. Oh, yeah. Arrives to find his friend dying and help him escape. Starman tells Pat to keep his cosmic staff safe until he can find a worthy successor to rebuild the Justice Society. But not you, Pat. Meanwhile, <laughs> a young Courtney Whitmore learns that her father, Sam Curtis, could not make it home for Christmas. Ten years later, her mother, Barbara, is married to Pat as he moves his stepfamily to Blue, Va- to Blue Valley a.k.a. home of one of the Flashes. After a bad first day at Blue Valley High School, Courtney accidentally stumbles upon the cosmic staff in her basement. It takes her to the local drive-in where Courtney disguises herself and accidentally destroys Jock Henry King Jr.'s father's car while pranking. Returning home, Courtney is confronted by Pat, who admits his involvement with the JSA, causing Courtney to believe Starman is her real father. Henry Jr. informs his dad 
Henry King Sr. about the incident leading to Henry Sr. donning his brainwave costume. While training, the, while training with the cosmic staff, Courtney is attacked by brainwave before Pat saves her with a suit of armor. Stripesy. Stripesy. Uh, so the tone of this episode was all over the place, right? Yeah. Like, I didn't know if this is supposed to be a parody of DC or if this was just kind of, um, a, a, a comedic take or, or what, um, it very much gave me initially the vibes of like a not R-rated, uh, peacekeeper in the terms of these are relatively minor characters in the DC scheme of things that most people aren't going to mess with and, and uh, can't kind of just do whatever they want with. But as we went on, as you said, that that's not true either because with Peacekeeper, it was let's use these characters no one cares about and just do something interesting with them. Whereas with this, it's, you know, this is, these are fairly comic accurate, but there is also a, a layer of humor underneath. So it's, it, it was hard for me to kind of figure out where this show was going initially with this first episode. I'm in total agreement. I will say though, that the first three minutes of this show. Perfect. That is. Oh yeah. No, they're I amazing. Hands um, down. And it was, I was surprised by who the cast of Starman. I was like, Oh, I didn't realize Joel McHale was needing work, but okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's, let's take a minute. What has Joel McHale done? We got Community. I think he was a right. host on a talk show on the E Network back when the E Network uh, Talk Soup. Yep. Uh, he had that. a Netflix spinoff, uh, which I forgot the name of, and that was for two seasons. And then he was the host of Card Sharks for a while. And he was on some <laughs> failed anim- animal catcher show where they were like the people that you call when you need animal control. Oh, jeez. So um, I'm not going to disparage him because he's an actor making money, living what he wants to do. And I, on the other hand, work at an office thinking that I would like to be an actor that would be on that failed show. But I digress. <laughs> no, it was just it was just an interesting choice. Right. Like. Um, uh, I saw a lot of comedic actors in that first three minutes. And I was like, OK, this is supposed to be a comedy. Uh, and then it kind of does it go that direction and it kind of slings back and forth um and so uh, again it was like it, it there was a lot of jarring tone shifts in this first episode uh particularly coming off of some relatively quote-unquote serious shows that we have watched um uh so like it's it was interesting to see a comedic show that's also relatively comics accurate and as much as it can be uh, respectful of the DC mythos. Cause I want to say this was made in what? 2019 or 2018. Yeah. So yeah. we would have been around man of steel still. And people right. would have had um, their dark gritty Superman. It, true. And then maybe the reason why they did this was because to, to specifically to have a, a, a tonal shift. Right. Um, because this is the slate of shows that got canceled purely because all of the DC shows got canceled in 2022 um, in various ways. So, so uh, I could see the, let's do a kids, not kids show, not a show for kids, but a, a show that features teenagers 
Um, and so it's, it's, and this is the tone it kind of took with it. Uh, so, I mean, but again, like it's, it's also weird because like you mentioned earlier, they're using the silver age continuity, but they're setting it only like 10 years prior. So there's also that of like, they try to get around it by just not having much material to worry about, but like who would take this old faded photograph like in 2012? (laughs) Thank you. There were cell phones at the time. There were (laughs) digital cameras. There is no way you would have that sepia tone photo, but, and I'm, I'm willing to give some stuff for like your initial pilot. And right. that that is the hardest crux to know that the goal in a voiceover can. We, yeah, sorry, not a voiceover. It was a, a silent, a, a screen over, if you will, because right. there was no one reading it to us telling us when it was that. So it's not technically a voiceover, but the golden age of superheroes had ended. So that means that the show is in the silver age, but the characters that we're dealing with, well, at least Courtney came out in the late 90s, which would put more in the bronze age, depending on which age of comics you want to go with. Right. So I mean, and so what, what, clearly what the show is just trying to do is there's a legacy of heroes and we're going to follow the people who inherited these mantles. And so there is an undisclosed amount of time between these two generations. Uh, and then they immediately put a hard date on it. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> you were you were doing so good. And then you, just, you made a choice. Like if they had just done something like put another generation in there, like this is the, the, you know, there was another star man after this one. And then she becomes star girl or, you know, uh, Pat was kind of briefly tried to hold the mantle himself when he was a kid and then couldn't do it. You know, something to kind of just put another generation in there. I think it it might've worked better, but in the end, you're right. It's, it's the, okay, we're just going with the tropes, but it's, I mentioned before about peacekeeper. Um, one of the things the peacekeeper advantage I think has is that it's not faithful and so it can update and, and smooth out those rough edges whereas i think jeff johns is being a little too faithful and it raises questions that are perhaps best not raised i i would say that the entire thing could have been fixed if he didn't use the term golden age like just totally not had it right which then removes all sort of allusion to that time period and those heroes and that would let us just see the passing of the mantle of the torch because it's it's less than a 10 year period because I want to say Courtney was what in that image, maybe five or six somewhere. Yeah. And I think for the show, she's around 14 or 15. So I, I feel like at one point in time, 10 years was, was thrown around, but uh, uh, that may be me. Uh, oh, you're, you're right. They do say 10 years, but I'm thinking of the actual how old the actress looks and how old I think oh, yeah, yeah. supposed to be. Right. That's fair. So if they'd removed the Golden Age word, I think it would have helped. But because I think anyone that's really watching this show intensely probably has a very strong comic background or else they're just getting into comics. Right. And anyone with a strong comics background will be sort of thrown off by that. And anyone getting into comics is then getting just bad information that you should fix. <laughs> exactly. And, and it comes down to the talking as a genre. You know, like that's what we're here for. Um, comic books have enough of a legacy that some of the tropes that were established early on are, have still stuck around, but we've lost some of the context for them. And so I think we're in this awkward place of like, okay, well, we know these things happen in older 
superhero stories, so we should homage and reference them because we have a very short period of time to talk about these things. We need to tap into those structures. But then by removing the context, it becomes weird. So like if, if you take, like, say, uh, Watchmen, which is a similar uh, uh, thing. It's like here's a previous team of superheroes and a team that came after that. Um, but they also explicitly set the comic or the movie in the 80s. It's just the 80s that never actually happened for us. Um, and so, okay, there's this very specific time scene, like you know, the Vietnam War happened at this point in time and World War II happened at this time. But then it's all kind of connected. And so, it's like, okay, we're looking at this. We're not looking at modern day. We're looking at a, a fictionalized version of the 80s. This is very clearly meant to be modern day. And so there's a, you can't do the comic book sliding idea in a three minute window of sub of exposition. <laughs> you need to build on that and, and get around to that. And I'll, I'll, I want to end on this point before we, we leave the justice society and their rotting corpses. Um, <laughs> the fact that if that has been your best friend, your sidekick, the person that you've known for, we'll say Joel McHale is what supposed to be what this 35, 40. Yeah. We'll say that. And we know he's been administering since he's 15 and Pat's been there. So we'll say they've got about 25 years of friendship and everything. That right. is not what you would say to your best friend is your dying last <laughs> breath repeatedly funny or not. It's not what you would do. That's... Then you get the feeling that he's been a, an asshole this entire course of their friendship. Right. Which I mean, again, if that's what you're trying to get across, then casting Joel McHale is actually the right call. I mean, cause that's, that's kind of what he does. He does the, the lovable asshole dynamic. Right. Um, but the rest of the show doesn't really sell that it implies that Starman was this, this amazing hero that everyone loved. Mm -hmm. And so then we have our, our 10 year jump. So we get immediately put in with, uh, Courtney's family. It was nice to see Amy smart again, and they're going to Nebraska, which you get the, the f building, the family sort of piece that you like to see in a show like this. So you have all your supporting characters, you get quick glimpses of them, like her stepbrother, how Pat interacts with everyone, how Courtney interacts with all of them and the new house are moving in. So that was a right. nice little quick 1950s touch to it. And, and am I right that this is the same city that uh, Impulse is from? Uh, I, I think it was Wally. Oh, was it Wally that came here? Definitely okay. one of the flashes. Right. I just remember which one it was. And on the whole, I as someone that is that has a, a lack of a love for Norman Rockwell, it felt very Rockwellian as they're walking around and everyone's saying, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Hey, stranger. I, I do like the kind of note of this is weird. Um, with people from California going, I, I don't know how to deal with this. So it was like, um, it was a neat touch. But again, given the comedic setting up, I thought this was the, oh, okay, and they're going to turn to be an entire town full of aliens or, or something. Yep. And they just, no, it's just a joke at the expense of people who live in the Midwest, apparently. So it's like, all right, I guess that's what we're doing. Who are, who are all very nice. And we get Courtney's first day in school where they have the trope about if you're from California, everyone automatically thinks you're cool. And then we get the quick inversion of that. Right. We get a joke about how boys like cheerleaders. Right. A lot of this isn't playing, I think, to I'm going to I'm going to assume our demographic because that wasn't aimed or targeted for us. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's clear that they're shooting for 
this is a high school dramedy, effectively. Um, and so they need to get to the high school dynamic relatively quickly. Uh, but yeah, I think that wasn't that wasn't for us. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, I just I recognize this is this is place setting. And I will say that it was a nice nice and somewhat uh blunt showing of all the characters that she interacts with and how we've seen the major cast of people that we're going to engage with for I think for most of the first season already. Up to right. we're about fifteen minutes in the show and we've already seen pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. After which we, so when I, I said nail on the head, which is going to be when she is put at the table of losers and you yep. instantly know that's going to be the new JSA just right. as soon as she's walking over to it. I would have liked a, a little something else to be there, even if just one of them wasn't there and shows up a little bit later. Something to, to add in an extra layer of suspense or like maybe we don't have the full team yet. That's going to happen. Right. But again, it's the. If you're structuring this as a humorous take or poking fun at superhero show structures, it's actually a great joke. It's the, of course, she goes to the one school where these people happen to be there, you know, like, and, and setting up for the Smallville style of this sleepy little town where this improbably high level of superhero stuff happens to happen in. It's like that could have been a really good set up for a, a, a satirical take on superhero structures. Um, and so again, at this point I was like, okay, so this is implausibly fast and that's the joke. It's just that the, there was no punchline to it. it, it <laughs> so so it, it, after the episode, I was like, but wait, so what was all that about? Was it just because the writers were bored and wanted to get to the good stuff? I mean, it, it was really unclear <laughs> what was going on here. Uh, yeah, I can agree with that. That's hands down. And so we sort of quickly go through that scene and we get into the garage with Pat and Crusher, who is yes. a, a very much a, a, a male macho scene of, of testosterone driven. Oh, we could we could get you ripped, ripped, <laughs> ripped, ripped. I it, it has no real purpose for me to mention other than I thought it was really funny and I was thinking of the of the tracksuit mafia as I saw him in his workout clothes, <laughs> wondering if they're gonna show up and go, bro, 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 bro. Um yeah, it again, it was it was weird. That scene stuck out to me too, because it's the oh, now superheroes need to be in super amazing shape. Uh or the setting up for the I need to get into shape montage, one of the two. Um instead well, it was would you just know? That the no. lightning gave Barry abs. Lightning gave Barry abs. And, and apparently Nebraska doesn't have that kind of lightning. It's a different kind of lightning. You have to, it's very geographically centered. <laughs> um, and it is, is, it's a nice also touch, I guess, that Pat owns a car shop where he can fix his armor. That is right. a bunch of cars. The, the, I was just gonna say it's like it that actually I, I liked because um so the structure of the show said okay, Pat is was a sidekick. Um and so all the stuff leading up to it, it's the okay, he's gonna set up his 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 sidekick business or whatever. Um so there's a very mild mystery about what Pat's doing and this kind of 
this this minute like oh he he's gonna open a garage and that's his business but also a secret place they can do things away from everybody else so he, and then you know his robot turned into made of cars so that all kind of tracked and played for me because again we're talking about taking silver age concepts and playing them straight eventually we find out the playing straight uh and so a car a robot made of cars sure that that that's as plausible as anything else in in this era of superheroics um but it's interesting you bring that up because you have this weird the juxtaposition starts to start to occur right around here in the episode right it's the it's not it, it's being played straight and that's fine but nothing else has been played straight to this point um, because if this was going to be a comedic take, you'd have him like, like the robot standing in the corner and him trying to cover it in the tarp or something as someone walks in, <laughs> you know, um, or, or like the, the, the garage is so obviously a superhero lair, but everyone just fails to notice <laughs> that, you know, there, there's something else that has to happen with this gag, but it just happens to be a kind of empty room with a car in it. That, that's what that set does for all the episodes we watched effectively. So it's like, so what was the, what is the entire point of the garage? Really? You know, all of those things you just said would have made it feel silver age, which would have then reinforced the usage of the word golden age at the beginning. Right. By having those comedic tropes to counterbalance that. Exactly. I agree. Uh, I agree. Or he could have done the best thing in the world. What? He could have taken the stripe armor and kept it under the city so it's in the bowels and then he just <laughs> shoots up through and goes big oh whatever he comes stripesy whatever he comes out <laughs> as long as he talks to his watch i'm in i'm for it just uh so but this point in time i i love retro and i love retro aesthetics but this show is not in the 1950s right and i'm now overwhelmed by the amount of 50s-ness that is being put onto the modern spin so it it has that weird, as you were already saying, tonal inconsistencies, and I can't latch onto it quite right. And let's compare this to 1990 Flash, right? They did the same thing. It was set into the then modern 1990, but it had 40s and 50s aesthetics. But the difference is, is that the show intentionally went out of its way to make it clear that this is meant to be an artistic pairing. Or even Batman the Animated Series does the same thing. And by juxtaposing two time periods worth of technology, but doing it very in an intentionally clashing style and then playing it straight, it's the, okay, no, this is an artistic choice. That's not what comes across here. It comes across as like all of the adults are living in the 1950s and all the kids are living in 2019. And it feels like two different shows are kind of happening simultaneously. And they're, they're not really meshing each with each other. Yeah, that's it. And oh, the thing that I, I am that I am least in support of for the show is the cosmic staff is sentient. I don't okay, like so it. That's a change. That's a change. Yes, it is. It is a utensil. It, well, not utensil. It, it's a, a weapon, uh, an object, something that they use and they mentally control and have it do things. It does not fight for them. It does not come to them. It does not provide them plutonium. Other than it's used to stop bad guys or bad villains or whoever. Right. And I didn't like it when I watched it. I don't like it on a rewatch. And I think it is one of the reasons I stopped watching the show. It's a very small thing, but it 
for me, it detracts from empowering Courtney. There's no reason for the staff to work with Courtney unless you're, she could be pure of heart, which is great, but she's not a great fighter. She's not technically savvy. She's a gymnast and that is played on from how they use the staff, but it's not her agency. It's the staff's agency and she is its accessory. And I don't like that. I want her to be awesome and the staff be her accessory. I'm curious, how do you feel about a similar change with uh, Dr. Strange's cloak also being sentient? Do you feel equally about that? I okay. hate it with a, with a fiery passion. So that's interesting. I, I, I generally agree with you. Uh, I don't have an emotional investment in the staff, but the idea of if you're doing something like that, you need something interesting with it. And again, what this show does with it is the staff becomes now the Archer D2 of, of the show in both that it is comic relief. It is nonverbal comic relief and also the overpowered actual protagonist of the show. Like the, the show, the show is really about the staff at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say from a special effects standpoint, the staff is amazing. Um, like they really sold the fact that it was glowing from within in a way that is basically, I won't say impossible to do in a television budget, but certainly hard to do in a television budget. So, so the money is clearly showing there. And that's something that, you know, you, you made that choice every episode. You have to do that, but the, the lighting, how the light hits all the characters when the staff's in the scene, it, it's all fantastic. And then separately, I like the, I feel like it's an addition. I don't know for certain, uh, the idea of the staff to kind of lock into space Mm-hmm. So that Courtney can use it to to rotate around or or bounce off of is a really cool visual thing. It makes the fight scenes we see in this much more dynamic than I'm used to for television superhero shows. Well, they also had like eighteen million dollars per episode, which sort of helped them do that. No, totally. I mean, I mean, you're talking before about how this thing had a budget, and, and that budget absolutely shows, and they're putting it in the right places in this show. Um, but also it's super clear that the striped robot's only going to show up in extremely rare circumstances. Cause that's where clearly a huge chunk of the money's going. Well, as well, it should be. Cause that is a massive, what 15, 20 foot tall thing that is right. hard to miss, especially right. in Nebraska. Yes. Hey, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and putting the, the sentience of the staff aside, I, I like the staff. I like the look of it. I like that they went with the later version of it and not the little gravity rod version that Ted Knight used, but the version that Jack used in Pass on the Court Night. Right. That was very nice from a comic perspective. And I want to point out that Chris is, is helpfully putting his hands f- closer and further apart as he says this, which is great for audio. Hey. <laughs> I, I, you conveyed it, so it obviously worked. <laughs> ah, it's called teamwork. I see what they did there. And we get a little bit of a training montage with Courtney. We get her stopping some some pranksters. Who doesn't want to like blow up a bully's car with their cosmic powered weapon? Right. Uh, and then we get the reveal that one of the actual villains from the start of the episode is the lead jock's father. So that was showing you that the other the villains are actually all still in town, which then goes back to why. Pat moved all of them to this town. Yep. 
And then it leads to a larger question of why are there villains just hanging out in Nebraska? So all nice plot points brought in through this one comical altercation. Right. And I, I like it as a, as a plot device, but it also is the point where I started to get very confused because the satire structure would be they just happen to all be in the same town. But no, there's an explicit signposting of this is a mystery that we're going to investigate and we do investigate it. And so it's like, so what's happening here? And, and uh, I think some of it, I actually, I think I have an answer to all this. I keep bringing it up, but I actually have an answer for it is I do believe the MCU is partly to blame for this because uh, ever since Iron Man, but particularly around 2012, when the MCU starts to really hit with the Avengers, you can't do a meaningful superhero show without a level of comedy in it. Uh, because if you look before the Avengers, some of the MCU movies, they actually have movies that aren't comedies at all. People aren't being funny at all. The first couple of, well, the second Thor movie. Um, and, you know, uh, well, uh, some, some of the Captain America films. bad. Well, sure. But the point is like, they're not, everyone's not making jokes. Captain America movies, the first couple, they weren't really, I mean, there are a couple of jokes, but but not as a promotion amount. If you go right around, you know, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 or and on, almost every movie has someone just making a, there's a joke like every five, 10 minutes. And this show feels like kind of a, a symptom of that. It's the, okay, we're putting a lot of money into this. It needs to be a big success. So we need to follow what formulas we know work. And one of those is that superheroes are funny. They do funny things. And when you and even gives the MCU some credit, if you do that and stretch it out over the course of two hours, you don't notice as much and it, it, you, you can kind of come to terms with it. When you try to compress that into an hour, it, it's much more visible and, and, and you get these stronger peaks and valleys, if you will. So I feel like what happened is this this episode tried to do a lot because it has to. I mean, it really got from this group of superheroes existed and killed all the way to this girl has a cosmic staff, has failed to use it properly, and is not being chastised by her stepdad in the robot suit. That's a lot to get through in an hour. <laughs> I, I I like your synopsis better than mine. I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, and then we get our actual confrontation where she gets to confront Brainwave, who is throwing tires at her because, yep. you know, as you do. Uh, I'm sorry, before this, I'm going to point out again, they're in Nebraska. I have never been to Nebraska, so I, I cannot speak to how populated or not unpopulated it is. But my assumption would be that at nine or 10 at night, there would still be people on the street. And therefore, they would see a young blind girl flying on a bright bright staff through the sky and then sitting on it because they're just barely above street level just and there might be cameras i'm just thinking that but not in 1950s nebraska chris true too bad we're <laughs> in like 2019 nebraska <laughs> right um and then we get the conversation with brainwave and it's nice to see they actually use mental superpowers effectively yeah that was uh, a change that I have myself have not seen done very often. And I loved it because telepathy and telekinesis are scary as fuck powers. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the only other time I've seen mental powers be that visually interesting was maybe the X-Men movies, which is one of the few things I'll say positive about the X-Men movies. <laughs> and then she gets saved by Stripe, which is Pat, which she discovers early on. In the comics, though, she didn't know that it was Pat for a long time. She just thought that a robot was following her around, kind of helping her out at different pieces, <laughs> at different points in the story. Robot stalker. Because she hated him more in the comics than she does in the show, which I, I like the fact that it's toned down to be less of a hate, but more of an irritance and some a dynamic that lets them work back and forth. I will say, um, as much stick as I've been giving about the tonal inconsistency of it, um, the actors of Courtney and Pat really have strong chemistry. Um, they absolutely do come across as a stepdaughter and stepdad trying to figure out how this relationship's going to work in a way that is fun to watch, but you still feel like you genuinely understand the emotions of everyone involved. And that's actually surprisingly tricky to do. Because uh, either you tend to kind of go to one side of like where he's basically dad and there's no real tension between the two, or they're just constantly bickering and it's not fun to watch. And you're like, this is almost abusive. It, the, the, you can feel the love that the characters have, but they're also clearly unsure as to how this dynamic is going to work as a family. And this episode did really good job. You have to cement that relationship between those two characters. And this episode, for all of its tiny little quibbly faults I mentioned, does get that nailed down correctly by the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. Hands down. Any last comments about the first episode? Uh, I was unclear... This episode didn't clarify, and I don't think it's clarified in the episode, so I guess I'll ask here. Does the suit actually transform into a car? I don't think it's clarified in the episodes I remember watching, but given it is the same car that we saw at the very start, I would say yes, and that's why I'm surprised you didn't make a Transformers joke so far. Well, I was going to say, it's like, seeing the robot, I was getting strong the Bumblebee movie vibes in terms of how it looked <laughs> in that it wasn't that early Transformers action movie where all the tiny little parts integrate and move around, which I never liked that style more of the, of course you're just going to have like the chest be a giant hood and with lights on it, because that is the best place to put your fragile glass parts of the car is <laughs> right in front. But be, uh, how else would they know it's actually a car? Um, but again, this is again, perfect silver age stuff. It's like the, there's probably one guy in this entire city does 19 who has 1950s car. This robot has the very clear, obvious front part of a 1950s car. I wonder who owns the robot. Could be anybody. That that's your quibble. Mine is you get this family that comes here and within one day, you've got a new superhero in town. They have a blonde daughter. The superhero is, blonde under her blue mask i wonder so so what you're saying is uh, it's like black lightning you're a tall tall black man there's no one else in this entire city as tall as you except black lightning hmm. so, so so supergirl's boss is the person who should be moving his town and she immediately go well obviously it's this person because that's <laughs> who showed up which is still my favorite scene for supergirl is like of course he's obviously the flash <sighs> Well, given with their massive budget, they could afford to have Calista Flockhart walk on for like five minutes and do yeah, so right. and walk off. Exactly. All right. 
season one, episode six, the Justice Society. After killing another of their daughters, Artemis Cook's football coach coaches Lawrence Crusher Croc and Paula Brooks are summoned by Icicle to aid Sharp as their ISA identities, Sportsmaster and Tigress, respectively. Pat confronts Courtney, ordering her to take back the JSA equipment she gave her friends. Fearing for her teammates' lives, Courtney asks them to surrender their gear, but they all refuse and pressure her into letting them go after Sharp when he attempts to hack a communications company for satellite codes. However, they are intercepted by Sportsmaster and Tigress, who easily overpower and nearly kill the teens before Stripe intervenes. After Pat talks to Courtney and clarifies that while her team is not ready to face the ISA, he agrees that a new JSA is needed and offers to help train them. Meanwhile, Barbara and Pat's son Mike bond when she makes a surprise visit to his science fair presentation. Carmen's cryokinetic powers start to develop, and Icicle brings the ISA together to figure out the JSA's successors, who the JSA successors are, and to wake Brainwave to complete Project New America. Okay. I'm going to say something I don't think I've ever said out loud to another human being before. I was excited to see Sportsmaster. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh my Sportsmaster God. is my favorite dumb DC character because his whole gimmick is he's a master of all sports. It's not complicated, right? He masters all sports and then makes him the ultimate athlete. And they played him exactly right in this episode. <laughs> him being the obsessed athlete parents was perfect because as soon as I saw this, I'm like, please tell me he's Sportsmaster. Please tell me he's Sportsmaster. Yes! <laughs> I oh, <laughs> I could not see the same thing as I saw low rent Casey Jones. Oh, he's and absolutely low rent Casey Jones. I I'm not disagree with that at all. It does not change my opinion. I was waiting for a turtle to pop up from the sewer to like give him a high five or a slice of pizza, but it just never happened. No, see, and that's the thing. It's like I don't remember. Teenage Mutant Turtles is supposed to be a parody of superhero comics. Teenage Mutant Turtles was a parody of Daredevil, and Casey Jones was a parody of Sportsmaster. And the fact that we have culture come around to where Sportsmaster now looks like a parody of Casey Jones, I love that. It shows how amazing... We should do a Teenage Mutant Turtles show at one point because I I have strong opinions about TMNT. Um, But... I just discovered my my trade paperback from the first run, from the first series run, so... I'm not opposed to it to talk about... So good. So bad. So good. The hand slash the foot. Just saying. Honestly, the IDW series is actually really, really fantastic. Um, uh, But this goes back to... Again, the first part of this episode is like Sportsmaster... Up there was Stiltman as the best villain ever. And the plot is they murder football coaches because they won't let their daughter play in the position they want her to. And I'm like, this should have been the entire villain plot. No, this is just a subplot for the actual villain plot, which is serious. And I was bored with it. It's like, no, this should have been the entire episode of the show. <laughs> it's like they uncover the, the, the Scooby gang of the JSA investigate why this, the football coaches keep dying and they uncover the secret conspiracy of sportsmaster trying to get their daughter into better positions to play and that's actually been the whole episode but 
that would be if it was a Silver Age show is what that plot would be. Right, exactly. No, it, it is 1,000% Silver Age. And so we can't do that. We, we give you a, a fact acknowledgement like we know this would be Silver Age. So that's what we put it here for dark Silver Age. Silver Age through a modern lens is what that would be. Right. And we can't give you that. We have to give you this instead, which feels more like a Golden Age-esque plot through a modern lens. Right. And, and again, this show keeps shifting gears. Like it starts off that way and then it kind of goes into um, – the Wildcat successor is a hero, not realizing your parents are villains and vice versa. I'm like, oh, we saw this in Black Lightning. Okay, cool. I, I get where this is going. Uh, but then like, you have the kind of gag of the date night is actually a supervillain beatdown. So it's like, I, I, I can I can see that. But the whole time, it's kind of like, it's almost like Marvel's Runaways, where the whole shtick is the kids realize all their parents are supervillains and they fight against their supervillains or fight against their parents and they get together as a team to fight against their parents. Uh, so it's like, it, it's it's going into some potentially really dark, interesting, dramatic places that it keeps pulling back. And it never quite seems to figure out, well, like, you know, like there's a whole, the whole gag about Courtney trying to get, I get all the equipment back and all of the, her friends go, no, uh, that's funny. But then it leads to a very serious conversation of, you don't get to tell us what to do with this stuff. We've made these decisions now. Um, and so the gag suddenly becomes dramatic. Um, the two parents and their relationship with the, the dynamic, they're, they turn out to be the actually genuinely scary uh, subordinates to Icicle. And so it's like, how am I supposed to feel? Right. And, I, I, my, I feel like the show is trying to challenge my assumptions and it's trying to say, okay, you're laughing, but now it's actually serious. Uh, but the problem is that the tropes of the show don't back that up. Because like, if you want to do the, hey, you thought this is funny, but it's actually serious thing, that's great. You don't use Sportsmaster for that storyline. <laughs> Tigress? Sure, I could buy that. Fucking Sportsmaster is not the character you pull out of the drawer for that dramatic storyline. But he has depth, though, that you have now discovered. But I don't want depth in Sportsmaster. <laughs> I want a guy so, who uses cricket bats to beat people up. <sighs> and explosive baseballs. Um, <laughs> explosive baseballs are the best. <laughs> I think that you've, for me, pointed out why the show feels so weirdly inconsistent is that it's trying to appeal to the largest audience possible in every single episode yeah, to get more eyes and keep them watching it so it sort of reinforces why they have such large budgets. Mm. To get more media attention and everything else so they can keep doing the show. And right. I think it's to its detriment. Yeah. Um, a good example of, of ground zero of why this is a problem is Dr. Midnight is because the scene where Courtney approaches our friends, I forget the name, um, to get Dr. Midnight goggles back is constantly cycling and oscillating between the humor of hearing one half of a telephone conversation as she's talking to Dr. Midnight. We don't hear the other half of Dr. Midnight's conversation 
and the drama of this very lonely little girl mm-hmm. who's finally found someone, finally found a friend. And the show wants us to feel both those emotions at the exact same moment, and neither land as a result. And it's frustrating because I think there could be either of those directions could have been great, but I feel like that character gets stuck in a specific middle point of haha, the doctor character is useless, and oh my god, this little girl is being dragged into a war just because she's lonely. And so both of them just nullify each other. And it's frustrating to see because I think either direction would have been really fantastic. Well, not, I, I mean, you make it fun of them because she's lonely is not a great direction, but um, either of those is a valid dramatic choice. And, but, and there's all, neither really happens. And I wanted to, honestly, I was going, I, I was like, I would have loved the whole, this girl is lonely and does what this mentor figure does and maybe get taken down a very dark path as a result. That would have been a fantastically dramatically interesting story. But that's not what the show is telling us it's going to do. And now that we're talking about it, it is um, interesting. It's not the right word. <clears throat> it is telling that all of them have been superheroes for a week, Courtney, two weeks. Yep. But watching the show, the least experienced character seems to be Beth, who is Dr. Midnight. Yeah. And I want to know why out of all the characters, Beth is the one that seems to be like the, the noob in a team of noobs. Right. And let's be blunt. Why is the black woman presented to be the person with the least, who's least effective? Mm-hmm. So it's, it, 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 it was rubbing me wrong when I saw it and talking about it has like fully just galvanized that now in my brain. Right. Like I saw yeah. it and I was like, well, that sucks. And now it's just fully cemented. And it's not because none of them have a lot of experience hands down like right but i mean again a small tweak in the writing if you just made it that um dr midnight's giving her all this hand that's giving and so everyone listens to her because dr midnight's giving her information she's giving it to the rest of the team that would give her a very solid role would have erased that comp- competence issue and still allowed that character arc of her gaining her confidence which is she's really going for but what happens is she comes across as comic relief and we've talked before about the comic relief smart black character being a continuing problem with CW. Mm-hmm. We can point it out, not even, I'm going to go a little bit broader for this one because as, a, as, a, as we've touched on it, but the this is more of a colorism problem. Mm-hmm. Generally, everyone that's a darker skin is the comic relief in all the shows. And I make this specific distinction somewhat because of the core team in Flash. If you look oh, at yeah. it, because the core team of Flash is Barry, Cisco, and Caitlin. That is the core team of Flash. Joe and everyone else are important, but they're pref- uh, peripheral characters. Yeah, that's fair. And the comic relief, they're Cisco. And if you go and look at even Green Arrow, Diggle becomes more and more comic relief as the seasons move on. And eventually they'll introduce Mr. Terrific, who is an incredible fucking character. Like the oh, yeah. smartest person in the DC, in the DC universe. And it is played for absolute comic relief from start to finish for that character yep mm-hmm. and we get the same thing here right but we can move on to them actually sort of going to try to, to go on their first mission they they all costume up and and they go in and 
they are taken down by Sportsmaster and Tigress. <laughs> Sportsmaster and Tigress. Yes. I'm only, I'm putting negative connotation on one of those. And in case you can't tell which one I'm doing, it's fucking Sportsmaster, a low-rent Casey Jones with explosive fucking baseballs and a baseball bat. Right. And while I touched on the, the, the problematic framing of, of Tigris, to her credit, she is presented as extremely competent and is very much implied to be the brains of their marriage, uh, which I did appreciate. Um, uh, and also the fact that she was the more aggressive of the two, particularly in the controlling her daughter area was actually really cool too um uh now, it's the but would uh, that go back and then play on that concept though of tiger moms oh yeah maybe that's a good point i was just thinking more purely in the athletic arena usually it's not women are usually not presented as the, the people who are more supportive of their daughters taking athletic careers usually men are seen in that role uh but that's a fair point i hadn't thought of that's why we're a team. We're uh, we're Jaina and Jace. People can figure out which one of us turns in a bucket of water. Um, <laughs> fucking Sportsmaster. That's, that's, that's great. Got nothing. Sportsmaster. Um, so while I I do agree that like Tigris was an incredibly proficient and kick butt character, I am again a little put off by the fact though that the equipment the kids have. And I am calling them kids because they're supposed to be teenagers. Yep. Are making them on par with these villains that have been villains for decades. Like they may lose in the end, but they're keeping up with them. And like that is a weird sort of like rift that they're playing with. Which in your own TV show, of course, you have to eventually win. But you're fighting villains for decades that killed equivalent your senior counterparts, and now you're standing toe to toe with them. So, if I could summarize. You feel like Sportsmaster, who is a character who is not deserving of credit, is not in fact getting enough credit by this show for being as deadly as you think he should be because Sportsmaster is great. I, you're close, <laughs> think Sportsmaster <laughs> is a joke, but he is a psychotic killer that's been a psychotic killer for two to three decades. Right. And now trust me. If I ran around whacking someone with a bat every day for hours a day, I would then become a great proficient person with hitting someone with a bat. Exactly. He's he, If you do what you love, you never go to work. Right? <laughs> um, but I, I, see your, I see your point. It's that the kids inherit stuff and suddenly are great, great at being superheroes, even though the first few episodes were Courtney's not great at being a superhero. So what happens is that... Courtney actually gets lessened as a character by the writing because she is not competent unless she has a team. And that's the team that she spent this episode trying to make sure didn't get together. Yep. So she's not, we don't even have the, she's a great leader beat. It's the, she stumbled into success. This was what happened here. And it goes back to an initial point of, she is the staff's accessory. Uh, in the end, Stripe shows up, scares off fucking Sportsmaster and Tigress. <laughs> and then we get a, a very nice touching scene in the warehouse. I'm sorry, the garage with with the kids in awe of the 1950s robot power suit and 
Pat listening to Courtney complain about how no, they're not listening to her. They're endangering themselves. And it's the speech that right. he was giving her. Right. So that is a nice beat. I, I like that family moment. And he's like waiting for the realization to strike her. I'm not a huge Luke Wilson fan, but I like Luke Wilson in this show. And it makes me wish I liked the show more. Yeah. No, honestly, again, uh, uh, those two actors, when they're in a room together, are fantastic because she even I don't know how old she is when she's been filming this, um, but uh, she had the right comedic timing of she would say something out and he would make the oh, yeah, that sounds weird. And like she would do a half second pause like she's about to realize it and then go right into the next comment. Um, so you kept waiting for her to hit the realization. She, she gave you that false setup like two or three times before she actually hits it, which makes that scene even funnier. And like, that's just pure acting timing. That's not something you put in a script. That's something the actor has to bring to that delivery. And she did a really good job. I, I suspect Luke Wilson, maybe other people on the, on the show probably helped her with that, you know, because it's one thing when you work in shows like that, you learn from these more established actors. Um, but she really nailed it and really sells the chemistry between those two actors in an in extremely engaging way. So once again, the whole episode, I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. And then that, that moment is like, okay, I, I, I love these characters. You're right. It's like, I wish the show weirdly would support this more, um, but it keeps getting distracted by other things. And, this show, so for me, when I watch television, I'm willing to give a show roughly a quarter of its run, which means yeah. if you have a, a show that's eight episodes, I'll give you two episodes. A show like this that's 13, I'd give you three or four. Mm-hmm. And we're on episode six now. And on episode six, I'm, well, maybe I, I would watch this. You've already lost me as a viewer. Right. Interestingly, I'm the same way also with uh, books. It's like if I, I usually give uh, 20% of a book, uh, mm-hmm. 25% of a book of a read. If, if, if you haven't got me by 25%, then I, I move on. Uh, I have a finite amount of time that I can devote to anything. So yep. I have to prioritize. Any last minute comments on the Justice Society before we move on to episode 10? Uh, one last defensive sportsmaster. This is important to me. Um. One of the reasons why I like Sportsmaster in this so much is that he's the only character that is consistent throughout this entire viewing. Everyone else, like I mentioned, you talk about the oscillation, we point to a lot of them, but Sportsmaster is very clear what he is. He is a uh, he's an assassin that is sports-themed. That is it. He is also a father who wants his daughter to do well and will literally kill anybody to make sure she does well. And he's not complicated, right? <laughs> and I find that weirdly refreshing because if the whole show had been like that, I would have loved it. If they had given him a dramatic arc and really stuck with it, the fact he's sportsmaster, I would have eventually gotten over. Um, the fact is he's in the wrong show. He, he He's... Sportsmaster would have been fantastic in the 1990 Flash, right? He would have been yeah. amazing in 1990 Flash. Uh, he's in the wrong show. And it's frustrating because it's like, I really like this character for lots of reasons. And he's just jarring against everything else. And so like that was for me when I started to, I was, I was suspecting it in episode one, I talked about it, but like here I was like, no, this, this is a really cool guy and an actor who's 
trying to make this extremely dumb character work. He's trying his damnedest to make it work. And he's, he's nailing it more than he's not. <laughs> but he's just if in the wrong a show. If there's a piece of scenery, it has not been matter eat laded. Yes. Oh, God, yes. I mean, he is... Everyone else is trying to, like, play play it relatively straight. And he's like, nope, I'm going camp. I'm just 100% camping this up. And it's like, that's fantastic, dude. You're, you're pulling a full... Uh, um, not not Riddler, uh, 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 jokester, prankster on this. Um, but why did I blank on his name? Oh, I feel so bad now. Mark Hamill's character. Mm. Okay. Uh, prankster, prankster. Yes, right. Yes, whatever. Uh, anyway, he, he's 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 going for it. And for superhero show, sometimes that's what you got to do. And this is just the wrong superhero show for it. So as, as much stick as I give you, I, I will give you this much. Uh, when I run a superhero game, there are char- specific characters who much like who are in fall in the vein of Sportsmaster. I will always put in the first two or three games. Like I, if I ran DC, if a DC superhero game, I would actually use Sportsmaster. But for Marvel, mm-hmm. I always throw in a Taskmaster or yeah. like a Modok, who are essentially this is my thing, this is my stick. I am low rent, and right. I am unbelievably fun but to interact and engage with exactly right um there are there's a value in a certain class of supervillain and when done well they can be really amazing um there was a fantastic run of spider-man um called uh the sinister the no, sensational sinister six uh which was just the sinister six really low rent characters, them trying to figure out why they keep being beaten by Spider-Man and then launching this elaborate plan that falls apart before Spider-Man even realizes what's going on. And it's, it's obviously comedy, but there's also a certain amount of heart in the, these are just blue collar guys trying to make a buck. It just happens to be at the wrong end of the superhero conflict and just not good at their jobs. Um, and, and there's a certain amount of heart that comes with that. And I, I feel like Sportsmaster is not that character, but you're right. There's a, there's value in when doing superhero narratives going, this is an established character that we all, he's the jobber in, in wrestling terms. This guy comes out, we know he's going to lose. Here's just make the superhero mm-hmm. look good. And that's his role. And occasionally on very rare moments, they win. And then the superheroes have to live with that tarnishing right. their reputation. We beat Galactus and we're, beaten by sportsmaster so like right. that modulation is amazing right like i i am i am uh the leader of the avengers and the best the only real super soldier left in the world and Betrock the leaper just kicked my ass yeah <laughs> so there, there there's a lot to be said and it's also since we did a comic book run the serpent society like right. they're yes. they're the epitome staple of workers and they're like in there day jobbers and we both love the fact of the, of the, the, the super the serpent society drama of just trying to be a union of supervillains, and that was amazing. We both love that. All right, but we're not here to talk about Marvel. We're here to talk about uh, season one, episode ten, Brainwave Junior. After blaming Pat for convincing Courtney to become a superhero, Barbara kicks him out and tells Courtney that they are leaving Blue Valley. After discovering Henry Senior has amnesia and Jordan killed his mother. Henry Jr. becomes convinced that he can save his father from Jordan's influence. While Pat goes to find Barbara, Courtney and the JSA, accompanied by Henry Jr., 
search for I for, search for the ISA headquarters. Barbara's records a conversation with Jordan and his parents, wherein she and Pat learn that a machine that Jordan is building. As the JSA continued their search, they stumble across Dragon King's private lab, where Courtney, Yolanda, and Henry Jr. defeat him before locating Henry Sr., who has been cured of his amnesia. The team tries to escape, but he is cornered. But they're cornered. Henry Jr. sacrifices himself so the others can escape. But before he is killed, Henry Sr., brainwave, admits to killing his wife himself. Right. I, I want to point out, if you noticed in almost all of my recaps, I have not mentioned Dr. Midnight or Our Man. Because right. the two characters usually have very little to do or they're frequently sidelined. Like, for instance, for this, they go and discover that Solomon Grundy is in a, is in a cage. That is their full story arc. Yep. And it's Dr. Midnight is anxious and doesn't trust herself and our man is aggressive and overconfident that that's that's it those are the character beats um i will say uh for a character that really only shows up in this episode i was actually pleasantly surprised by henry jr because you don't often see the school jock getting the role of mental powered character he is in the first episode we watched also he is a reason well, yes, why but, Yolanda is an outcast for being because he's always a bag of dicks. Oh, okay, yeah, that's you right. You sort of find yeah, out yeah. through the course of the show that he asked her to send him nude photos, oh. and so he releases those as she's giving a big speech. Oh, okay. Well, then I I'm, I like Malala's now. Um, but uh, just from a structural standpoint, again, it, it's the having him be the kid of Brainwave was an interesting twist uh, because usually um, there's a lot of predestination in superhero comics the athlete becomes super strong or super fast uh the scientist becomes extremely you know super brainly powered mental powers um so twisting those can be fun if done well and at least within the context of this episode it was done well because he was trying to come to terms with his power set and try to make a good go of it uh, while also struggling with his relationship with his father, who was obviously much more experienced with his powers. Um, but what was actually going on with Brainwave Senior was a hot mess. <laughs> there was like a year and a half of comic book twists shoved into one episode. Yeah. But, you know, on one side, on, on one point, though, they had to bench Brainwave because he knew who Courtney was. And that was something that I think happened early on in the second episode or so. Right. When at a, which the second episode was when I considered because I think that was like parent teacher night. So you have Courtney running around trying to find trying to escape Brainwave because she sees Brainwave and, and thinks Brainwave and telepath. He instantly knows someone said brainwave, so he's looking for him. So you get right. that comical bit. But we didn't have enough space for that one little shtick that I liked. But again, like if the whole show had been sitcom with superpowers, I think it would have been a much better show. Yeah. It it's a it's the fact it wouldn't settle on a 
or two tones. It tried to be all the tones at once. And that constantly is tripping it up at every step of the, of the way. Cause I see like so it, much potential for the show. Yeah. Cause this was obviously the big dramatic show, right? It's the, we're going to question who's on what side and, and maybe the villains can be redeemed and nope, turns out they can't be. I mean, that, that, that's all good stuff, but that, this episode doesn't exist in the same series as Parent Teacher Night, right? And I really think they should have just re- retitled the entire show, and that would probably have gotten more views if they just called it Justice Society. Yeah. Because it is primarily focused on Courtney, but it's Courtney reforming the Justice Society. The Justice Society are equivalently almost in every single episode. Everything she does is with them. And then that would have also removed some of the lack of agency that we're seeing on her part because she can't seem to do she's not doing a lot without the team so it shifts it to being a team focused story with her being our leader so of course they're more inclined to follow the leader and what they do and the team supports that action right i mean yeah i've been just society and then just star girl is is the the lead protagonist that's still fine so it's solve some of the issues um so, what do you think of Courtney and Brainwave Jr. being cousins? It's very Jeff Johns. <laughs> everyone is related to everyone because that's what you do in DC, apparently. It's not true, but that's what Jeff Johns does with DC. And I was just like, yeah, of course that's what it is. I, I was just kind of like, eh, at this point, it's like, it, if it had been a satire, that would have been a gag. You know, um, it, it's the everyone's related to everyone and everyone in the superhero community ultimately relates to each other. That would have been funny. There could have been a way to make that funny. It's just kind of one more plot twist on a whole pile of plot twists that I'm trying, I'm struggling to care about. So on the whole, the a lot happens, but nothing happens. We get the, the brainwave junior sort of reveal that comes to them and the nice touch though, that they are disappointed in Courtney for basically exposing all of their secret identities to this person. And that is something that could break up the team, but they say that we know you're going to do this anyway. So we're going to go to have your back. Right. Which shows a true bond of team and friendship right there. And the show episode ends with them seeing Henry Jr. buried alive. And it's the such a weirdly dark turn for this show. It's the now you have to live with the consequences of, you know, the very thing that Pat's been warning you about, now it's actually happening. And for it to happen in such a dark way and to a character that most of them don't actually like is a very complicated and emotionally textured response to a show with Sportsmaster in it. <laughs> He's not even really in this episode. Why are we talking about Casey? Because it, uh, Sportsmaster <laughs> is the light, the one light of joy. No, that's not true. I actually <laughs> like to show more than I'm giving a stick for it. But, the, but um, it, if you had watched one of these episodes and not all three, each episode you would have watched, you would have a very different opinion of what this show is supposed to be because each one is different the first episode is primarily a comedy uh uh the sixth episode is 
primarily a Silver Age story. And the 10th episode is much more we expect from modern day prestige television. And they're all very different and they're all ostensibly in continuity with each other. But like, even like Courtney's I Have to Break Up the Team in episode six is played as a sitcom almost. And here in episode 10, I have to keep the team together, which is the opposite storyline. And she, of course, again, ironically ends up almost breaking the team up by doing that is not at all played for humor. It's not even a reference to episode six. It, 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 it's just another story that happens to happen. It, it feels in, in one way, very comic book in a sense. It feels like three different creative teams wrote these episodes. <laughs> but we know that Jeff Johns had a strong hand throughout the entire course of the show, though. I don't. I, I wish I knew where that hand was because I don't see it. <laughs> Because I think if we look at the credits, his name pops up four or eight different times at different roles. I, I, oh, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, it's just... I don't know if it's a case of Jeff Johns didn't have as much control. If this show is... I, I, I really think you're right. I think it's the show is trying to do so much. The show is trying to appeal to a whole bunch of audiences and ended up appealing to none of them. Um, and what's a shame is that I didn't dislike this show. I mean, of all the shows we watched the past few episodes, this is actually the one I liked the most out of all of them. Um, I feel like there's a lot of potential in this show. I think that's why I'm so frustrated is that the casting is generally really good. The characters are interesting. There's a lot of potential here. It's just, it's just not gelling. It, it feels like this show's put together very quickly. Uh, and a lot of the attention was put into the special effects and not into the fundamentals of making a television show. And that's frustrating. And I feel like the actors did the best they could with what they had. Which goes back to a comment, I think from our, God, who are they called? The Legends episode that I made is that it was more focused on the Flash and not the Flash as a character, but the flashiness of it. Yeah. And not the depths of the characters that bring you back to be more of a center of things. Because that's the reason why we love Captain Cold and Heat Wave from the Legends. Right. And they do not have flashy powers that show up all the time. It's because of their characters, their interactions. And while the zaniness of the plots of the Legends show are still tonally consistent for the universe they exist in. Mm-hmm. These plots and characters are not tonally consistent, but the characters themselves are good. So that's, well... Half the characters are good. And that's the right. the issue for me. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's frustrating. Um, there just could have been an amazing show. And at the end, for me, it just kind of comes across as, that was fun. I watched three episodes. It, it's but a I'm very, desire to watch anything else. It's a competent show. I would almost be inclined to watch the last episode 13 and maybe season two episode one just to see if it ends on a cliffhanger and they sort of find their footing in the second season but i don't have that kind of time so i won't do it right um in the ends and to your point of maybe it gets better um it reminds me a lot of the orville in the sense that the orville also season one didn't know if it wanted to be a parody of star trek or an honest presentation of a star trek like show uh, and eventually the Orville lands on, we're basically doing Next Generation 
more or less straight. Uh, but we have to sell it as a satire to Fox as a Seth MacFarlane vehicle in order to get the money to actually do the show we wanted, we really wanted to do. But even with the Orville, once you start watching it, you realize, oh, Seth MacFarlane really wanted to make Next Generation without you know, with serial numbers filed off and just had to do a certain number of episodes to get past the executives before he could do the actual show he wanted to make. So he has a very clear vision. He just had to kind of fake people to getting buying into that vision. I don't, I feel like this show may have been, I want to do a really serious take on teenage superheroes, but I want, I have to kind of trick you into being buying into silver age superheroes first, but it's like, nobody was asking for that. Right. Nobody needed to be tricked into this. Um, so it's the, I'm not sure what the end goal of this was. Uh, so I'm left with wondering if there is one, but I feel like there, there I, I hope there's a creative vision and I'm right. I mean, I, maybe it's season two, it all clicks into place and it becomes a really fantastic show because I want to root for this show. It's just making it hard for me to do that. But I would have never given you this many episodes and I wouldn't even have the thought that I have now if we didn't have the format that we use. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think that was most of your final closing thoughts on Stargirl, correct? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, then what can people expect next week from us? Smallville? Because we could go and do the Smallville two-parter where the Justice Society shows up in season six or nine, I think. I mean, we could also do the really, really horrible Justice League pilot that features the Justice Society from the 90s. Yeah, but it has the wrong Green Lantern, so I won't do it. It's Kyle Rayner. I don't. I know people love oh, Kyle Rayner. Uh, I like Jon Stewart. I like Alan Scott. But I, 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 think, I think Kyle Rayner got a short stick. Uh, but no, we're going to one last push for the Arrowverse uh, because one thing the Arrowverse has been known for is it's crossover episodes or crossover events, I should say. Um, and we're going to pick one where they started to really treat them more like a mini series than actual distinct episodes. Uh, so this is crisis on earth X and it's basically a four part mini series. Uh, it's just, you're going to have to find each of these episodes buried in other shows <laughs> Um, and if you live in the UK, it's on four different streaming services, so have fun with that. Uh, but it's going to be uh, Supergirl, Season 3, Episode 8. Arrow, Season 6, Episode 8. The Flash, Season 4, Episode 8. And Legends of Tomorrow, Season 3, Episode 8. And those are all on HBO Max if you're in the US and the UK. Look at the show notes because, boy howdy, it's everywhere. <laughs> All right. If people are looking for you online, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me online as Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. That's me on uh, Dice.Camp. That's me on Twitter. Or you can find me in the Darker Hue Discords, where I'm now talking about Battletech novels, apparently, because that's the thing I'm talking about right now. If you're looking for me, you can find me at Darker underscore on Twitter or at DHS on Dice Camp, or you go to my website, Darker Studios, and you missed our uh, my great sale that I had a while back, so you never know. And I'm also on the Discord, taunting Eddie with random Daredevil villains just posting pictures that showed up in one comic, <laughs> asking if he knows who they are. I had no idea who that guy was. I know, that's why I did it. <laughs> uh, so next time, we'll see you next week as we go into the Nazi-controlled Earth-X. Be seeing you.